Good evening. It's good to see you all here. As, as Pastor Kerr mentioned, it's been a few years since we've been able to join together uh, like this for a Good Friday service. We're going to be tonight in Psalm uh, 22. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to that. And if you have one of our cart Bibles, you can find that on page 457. Now, for those of you who like texts neatly and in order, we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, so I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, but uh, before we study together, won't you join me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, each time that we gather together, we would be remiss not to remember what your Son has done for us on the cross. And so we gather on days like Good Friday to remember that specifically, but we gather each Sunday to remember his death and burial and resurrection. Thank you. We cannot say that enough, but thank you. So Lord, as we study this psalm together, would you bless us? Would you edify us? Would you help us to see more of Christ and what he has done for us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. 
From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and an Aaron word. May he bless it as we study together. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The words we just read here in this psalm, first written by David and made famous, spoken again by our Savior himself as he hung on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This evening we'll get into this psalm, but I want to put forward a suggestion before we move forward that this is not the only quotation from Psalm 22. It's at least not the only uh, allusion to Psalm 22 that Christ makes on the cross. Now this is a suggestion, commentators are split over this, but it's a, it's a suggestion, it's a thought that I, uh, I agree with, that I, I think is true. That in the very final verse, verse 31, that they shall come to proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That phrase that he has done it there in Hebrew, ki asha, the verb ashaz, a masculine, and those of you familiar with, with Greek or Hebrew or, or other languages that use genders with words, understand that that's a masculine word, so it's appropriately translated, he has done it, because that verb's in the masculine. But there's no specified subject, there's no subject set aside. We know that the subject that is speaking of the Lord, he has, has done it, that God has done it, so it's in the masculine rightly. But because of the way that Hebrew, or, or as Christ was probably speaking Aramaic, the way that the ambiguity of verbs works, it could rightly be translated, it is finished. It is done. Now you won't find that translation anywhere in English because it is a masculine verb and it's rightly translated, he has done it. But as Christ is on the cross, he's meditating on this psalm, he speaks this psalm and it becomes deeply personal for him. He's acutely aware of the work that he's doing, and he applies this psalm that is prophecy to himself. So that's where we're headed this evening, that this psalm is deeply personal for Jesus, and that it's prophecy. Psalm 22 is personal, and it's prophecy. Now, Psalm 22 is a Davidic psalm. It's a bit unique because there's so little known about the background of this psalm. And because of that, scholars, and I use that term loosely, scholars make up things that, must, that they think must have been the background for this psalm. Some think that uh, David, King David was ill and in need of uh, a savior and that other nations were waiting on his untimely death. And still others go so much further as, as to say that uh, there was some festival that David had attended where he was mocked. And uh, these things, there's no other scriptural backing for any of these things. The only background, the only appropriate setting for this psalm is the crucif crucifixion 
of Jesus. Now, we will deal with the prophecy aspect of this a little later, but I want to point this out first. I wanted to point this out first. Because as Jesus is condemned and he heads to the cross, he has the Psalms on his mind. Maybe it's Psalm 69 where uh, it speaks of someone getting sour wine or vinegar on a sponge. You see that in Psalm 69 verse 21. Or Psalm 31 when Christ says that into your hands I commit my spirit. So for Psalm 22, there's no other situation other than the crucifixion where this psalm makes sense. He has the psalms on his mind. He's praying through them once he's condemned and he's walking towards the cross. He has the psalms on his mind. Now, if there were any psalm that we could point to that speaks specifically and directly of Christ, there are a lot. But this one might be at the forefront because it is squarely about Christ. And Jesus himself seems to say that. He cries out as he's hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? He's hanging there, the crown of thorns on his head, beaten, whipped, struck, all of those things. He's hanging there, and this is what comes to mind. The psalm pulls us into that. It pulls us into the depth that Christ is experiencing. Now, we who have grown up in the church, we may uh, hear these words often, and, and we know, perhaps you've heard this growing up somewhere, that, uh, that when Christ is giving us the title of this psalm, he's giving us the first line of this psalm, that he's invoking the entirety of Psalm 22. He wants us to remember all of what Psalm 22 says. And so, yes, it pulls us into the depth of that despair, but how quickly does this psalm turn to hope? How quickly does it turn to trusting in the Lord? Verse 3, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So yes, absolutely, Christ is crying out at the separation that he's experiencing. He's crying out as he's there on the cross and as he took sin upon himself. Yes, Christ, who knew no sin, took sin upon himself that we might become the righteousness of God. Because that's what sin does, doesn't it? It separates us. It separates us from God. It puts a great chasm between us that no one can go across it save God himself. And for the first time, Jesus is experiencing what it's like to be on the other side. Like Adam, who walked in the garden with God, Jesus had a close and intimate relation with God while he was on earth. And for the first time, he's now experiencing what's a very sad reality for all of us day in, day out. He's experiencing the separation that sin creates. He's lost that closeness for a moment. So what a natural thing for Jesus to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, where are you? Why are you so far from me? So I have to ask if we take sin this seriously. Do we understand the depth of our sin? Do we cry out as Jesus did? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Are we, are we that broken? Are we that broken by the seriousness of our sin that we yearn for the day when we will not be separated 
from God. So it's because of sin that Christ is hanging on that cross, or he did hang, rather. It's sin that is that fundamental problem. It's because a holy God can't commune with unholy people. So Christ, yes, he became sin that we might become righteous. So thank God that this psalm simply does not end with verse 1 and verse 2. Thank God that Christ did that atoning work on the cross to bring an an unholy people into reconciliation with God. And to do that, he was on the cross. And throughout this psalm, we see how much he was afflicted. All throughout this psalm, especially the first half, we see this affliction. Verse 6, if you look with me. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Skipping down verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. To hear the affliction of Christ in this psalm. And ultimately, this ends in death, doesn't it? We all know the verse, for the wages of sin is death. And here we have it in verse 15. At the end of verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. That's the result of sin. Sin is what caused the need for this righteous, holy, loving, just Savior to lay his life down on the cross, to have his hands and feet nailed to a tree, a crown of thorns pushed into his head, and to be so disregarded that once all that's done, the soldiers would gamble for his clothing right in front of them. He was mocked, spit at, struck, beaten, whipped, even forced to carry his own cross until he could no longer physically do it forced to carry it to the place where he would ultimately die. So this is what sin costs. So yes, Christ prays through this psalm while he's on the cross, taking it personally, speaking in no uncertain terms that we might know that this psalm is about him, as all of Scripture is. All of Scripture does point to him, but Christ claims this one personally so that we might remember it while he's on the cross. Psalm Psalm 22 takes us in a bit of a a downward spiral, doesn't it? Considering where it begins all the way down through verse 19, 20, 21. There, in those verses, we begin to see a shift. We begin to see the Lord answered, to to see the strength of the Lord. This transition in English, it's, it's subtle. It seems like a logical place. And the force of the Hebrew is really lost there. The whole psalm up to this point, it seems to to drag us down into the depths of sin, into the depths of Christ's anguish. But in verses, especially 20 and 21, the Hebrew switches and it it uses this shocking imperative that that really, in in Hebrew poetry, it comes out of nowhere. In in the Hebrew, it kind of smacks you in the face. It's this forceful begging, pleading with the Lord. So after being dragged down into the depths, we now see the Lord begin to answer the first part of the psalm. Now we have to keep in mind that when David is writing this psalm, it's prophecy. There's no other explanation for it. 
David is, is writing about Christ. How else could David speak uh, of, of pierced hands and, and feet when crucifixion in David's day and age was not a common form of execution or common form of torture? How could he speak of people gambling over clothing? It's prophecy. Here in this psalm, it speaks of Christ himself and also what will happen after Christ leaves this earth. This is our second point to prophecy. This is about Christ and what happens after him. Verse 22 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Is this not the very reason that Christ came? To teach us about God, to teach us how we might be saved. So listen to the words of our Savior from John 17 that that Mark Taylor made reference to earlier. This is the high priestly prayer just before our readings began this evening. This is what Christ prays. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Do you hear it? Do you hear the words of our Savior echoing Psalm 22? He came to do just what Psalm 22 said. He came to proclaim the Lord to his brothers, to the children of Israel, that he might be glorified, that we might be glorified, that we might glorify him as well. So how did he do this? Well, he came and he walked among us. He spoke to us. He came to earth with a message, repent and believe. Jesus himself is the full revelation of God. He's the one that's been promised all along. He is that promised son of Abraham, where God promised Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And here in this psalm, there's an echo even of that prophecy. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Well, why will the nations bless him? Why should the nations worship him if not for his going to the cross, taking on the sin of all God's people, that we might be righteous? That's why Christ came. Verse 30, 31. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. 
They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. And Christ is the one who accomplished this. He is the one who by his death defeats death. He is the one that took on sin that we might be reconciled to God and we might have his righteousness imputed to us. He is the one that went to the cross. He hung there, beaten, bloody, and suffering, all those things. All so that those who belong to him might be forgiven of their sin. That's the prophecy we see in this psalm, that we can have righteousness from Christ. But what about after him? Do you think this is good news worth talking about? Absolutely. David writes that this shall be told to the coming generation, to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So as Jesus, as we remember him hanging on that cross, that act, his atoning work of salvation, that's what we come here to celebrate on Good Friday. That's the good news, that his atoning work is finished. Come to hear the good news of Good Friday. But that news is incomplete without Sunday. The psalm has a downward spiral that pulls us into Christ's suffering and his affliction, into the depths of, of, of sin and despair. And, and we come to the psalm thinking uh, we have this need for salvation. But then that shift happens in verses 19 and 20 and 21. The psalm begins to rise. It comes back to the glory of the Lord. Just as we remember Good Friday and Christ's death and his suffering on our behalf, how that reminds us of our sin, reminds us of our need for a Savior, but then Sunday comes. Rising up like the end of this psalm to remind us how great and glorious and wonderful God is and how great and glorious and wonderful our Savior is for going to the cross for us that we might be forgiven. So Psalm 22 builds us up to this final statement of he has done it, and he has. His atoning work for us on the cross, it was accomplished. It is finished. Let's pray. Lord, how wonderful is this news. How wonderful are you for giving us your son, that he might walk among us sinless, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Would you remind us of that? Would you cause us to know the seriousness and depth of our sin that we might thank Christ all the more, day after day? Lord, would you make us a people that share this with others? Make us a people that share it with the generation yet to come, as the psalm prophesied that would happen and has happened down through the ages. Would you do this. Would you share this good news with those who haven't heard it? Lord, we thank you. We cannot say thank you enough for Christ and his work on the cross. Father, thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.